0: That question is a nagging issue because, you know, myocarditis can potentially be serious and we're looking at a vaccine for children who if they catch the disease are likely to do well anyway. So we have to be very careful and make sure this vaccine is safe. Dr. Jonathan Baktari, You can see it. I mean, it's crystal clear. I think it's gonna really revolutionize things. Which is a big game changer. All information discussed or provided by Jonathan Baktari, M.D., Dr. Baktari, and or his affiliates and guests are for educational purposes only. The information discussed and provided is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical concern or condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of any information discussed or provided by Dr. Baktari or his affiliates and guests. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call 911 immediately. Hi, welcome to another episode of MD. Today, I want to talk about something that's near and dear to the heart of all parents during this pandemic. And the big issue, of course, is what are we going to do in terms of vaccinating children, adolescents? So what I want to do today is go over some of the data about the mRNA vaccine, particularly the Pfizer one, which has been approved in adolescent. And let's see what the studies show in that regard. So let's start off with what we already know about the 12 to 15, 16 population, which was approved a few months ago. And let's review some of that data and then work our way into the data for the 5 to 11-year-olds. The first study I want to go over is the New England Journal of Medicine article published May 27, 2001, called The Safety, Immunogenicity, and Efficacy of the Pfizer COVID-19 Vaccine in Adolescents. This was a very nice study in the sense that it was a placebo-controlled observer-blinded trial, and they randomized two groups of adolescents, 21 days apart, receiving 30 micrograms of the Pfizer vaccine, which is the Standard adult dose versus placebo. They enrolled approximately 2,260 adolescents, 12 to 15. And 1,131 of them received the Pfizer vaccine, 1,129 received placebo. We learned uh, that the side effect profile was pretty routine, which included injection site pain, fatigue, headaches, and there was no serious adverse effects. So this randomized trial was done in healthy or adolescent with pre-existing conditions such as hepatitis B, hepatitis C and HIV, persons with previous documented infection with the COVID-19 virus were excluded as well as people who were immunocompromised. Again, the dosage was 30 micrograms, which is the standard dose that we give for adults. And then let's go over some of the findings we see. Between October 15th and January 12th, 2021, 2,306 adolescents, like I said, were Randomized in 29 US cities. Out of this group, 51% were male, 86% were white, and 12% were Hispanic. Overall, 58% had at least two month follow up after their initial dose. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is the antibody response. What was interesting is the antibody response in the 12 to 15 year old was robust and was roughly as good as the antibody response in the 16 to 25 year old comparison population, which meant that the 30 micrograms dose created a very robust antibody response and an immune response. So that was the first... Endpoint that this study looked at. Looking at the efficacy, what they found is that there were actually no cases of COVID 19 infection in the immunized group versus 16 cases in the placebo group. Based on that, the efficacy was at least on this report 100%. So the takeaway from this study is we at least know in the 12 to 15 year old group that the immune response to the Pfizer vaccine is as good as older adults. We also know that this immediate safety profile is similar, nothing unusual or different. And we see that based on the limited time they were followed, the vaccine efficacy was very good. So that was the part of the initial report that got the vaccine approved in the adolescent group. The next study I want to go over is published in the CDC, and the date of that publication is October 19th of this year. And this was a negative case control study in 19 pediatric hospitals in 16 states between the time of June 1st and September 30, 2021. Looking at children and adolescents between 12 and 18, this study demonstrated that nearly 97% of the cases that were between the ages of 12 and 18 that were hospitalized with COVID-19 were unvaccinated. So the study concluded the vaccination reduced the risk of COVID-19 hospitalization in this age group of 12 to 18 by a whopping 93%. And additionally, 16% of the hospitalized patients with COVID-19 had critical illness requiring life support and 100% all of those were unvaccinated. So taking this study in terms of not only can it prevent children from getting the disease, the adolescents from getting the disease, but also preventing severe hospitalization and death. So we definitely know now that the vaccine is efficacious based on the previous study in terms of getting the disease in in the 12 to 15-year-old, but also hospitalization and death. The next study I want to go over is now looking at the downside of this 12 to 15-year-old population. Based on the previous studies we just went over, we can conclude that the vaccine works, it's efficacious in terms of catching the disease, and it also prevents hospitalization and death. But th- those are the benefits. Now we need to look at the downside. And the main downside, of course, which has been highly publicized, is myocarditis. And that question is a nagging issue because you know myocarditis can potentially be serious, and we're looking at a vaccine for children who, if they catch the disease, are likely to do well anyway. So we have to be very careful and make sure this vaccine is safe. Hot off the press from Israel, where they have a very elaborate system to keep medical records, especially on the COVID-19 vaccine programs they have, allows us a great insight. So this article was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was published October 6th, and it's called Myocarditis After BNT162B2 mRNA Vaccine Against COVID-19 in Israel. That, of course, is the Pfizer mRNA vaccine. And in Israel, according to this study, 5.1 million Israelis have already been fully vaccinated, using the Pfizer vaccine. And they retrospectively looked at the incidence of myocarditis between December 20th and May 31st. The interesting thing about this is that the incidence of myocarditis in the vaccinated population turned out to be twice as high as the unvaccinated population. So there clearly is a link. Out of the 5 million, almost 5.5 million people vaccinated, really they boiled it down to 142 cases in whom myocarditis developed within 21 days after the first dose of the vaccine or 30 days after the second dose. And on some of the biopsies they did on the heart muscle, it did show inflammation. The good news is out of the 136 cases of definitive or probable myocarditis. 129 of them were mild, and resolution of myocarditis in most cases. Occurred as judging by clinical symptoms and blood tests looking at inflammatory markers such as troponin elevation, EKG, and echocardiograph normalization. The only thing that this study probably didn't look at is long term MRI structural changes in the heart, but based on the other parameters, at least 129 out of the 136 cases were mild and resolved on their own. On figure one, you can see. The incidence of myocarditis, you can see, obviously, after the first dose, the 20 to 29-year age group has the higher incidence, and that bears out even after the second dose. But you can see that this predominantly impacts younger individuals, anywhere from 16 to even 39, with the highest age group being 20 to 29, and also that is more predominantly in men than in women, so, overall, the risk in this study of getting myocarditis was twice among vaccinated versus unvaccinated people. And the risk was roughly one in 6,637 male recipients and one in 99,000 female recipients. But the final conclusion was that the myocarditis, which often developed within a few days after a second dose, mainly resolved. And in that sense, the consequence of myocarditis while present is relatively small and mild. While the myocarditis Is something to think about in looking at young men getting the vaccine. The Center for Disease Control estimates that for every million vaccinated boys between the age of 12 and 17, the vaccine may cause a maximum of 70 cases of myocarditis, but it would prevent 5,700 infections, 215 hospitalization, and two deaths. So again, this is sort of looking at the balancing act between the benefit profile and the potential uh, side effect profile. Clearly, now that we have a better understanding of the myocarditis and the fact that there's a very small chance of getting it and the vast, vast majority of those resolve spontaneously without any intervention tips the scale potentially more towards the benefits of getting the vaccine in that 12 to 15 age group or young men in general. Another uh, study coming out of Israel looking at myocarditis actually occurred in a large HMO in Israel which tracked records of over 2.5 million people that had gotten the Pfizer vaccine. And in their study what they found is out of those 2.5 million people there was 159 cases of myocarditis. The majority were mild to moderate symptoms and resolved, and the highest incident occurred in the 16 to 29 age group, where there were approximately 10.69 cases per 1,000 cases. So, this is consistent for the most part with the other study out of Israel where we see the incidence of myocarditis being largest in men, especially in young age groups. Also seeing that the majority resolved without problems, although there were exceptions, um, at least one in this trial, who had a bad outcome. So this again has to do with comparing The potential side effect of getting the virus versus getting the vaccine, even as it relates to myocarditis. So that is the struggle. Okay, so now that we've talked about the efficacy of the Pfizer mRNA vaccine in the young population, the 12 to 15 and older, then we brought up the incidence of myocarditis. But really, this is why you really need to look at the science in a hard way. And another really Elegant study published in the New England Journal of Medicine dated September 16th called the safety of the BNT162b2 mRNA COVID-19 vaccine in a nationwide setting. And another elegant study out of Israel, because again, they have a very controlled national healthcare system where they are able to maintain excellent records. And I'm going to provide a link to all these articles, but if you look at figure three, which is a very elegantly done graph. What you will see is the comparison of the side effects from vaccination versus getting infected with SARS-CoV-2 virus. So you see with acute kidney injury, the risk of getting kidney damage is significantly higher if you get infected. Interestingly, appendicitis slightly more but Insignificantly more if you get the vaccine, but look at the bad things like arrhythmia, deep vein thrombosis, which is blood clots often in the deep veins of the leg. Again, zoster for some slight reason was slightly more in the vaccinated group, but not much. Intracranial hemorrhage, you know, the thing that we always worry about with some of the other non-MRNA vaccines, you can see significantly increased in the vaccinated group, lymphadenopathy, which means just your lymph nodes get enlarged and it happens in any active infection. But then look at myocardial infarction and even myocarditis, everything we've been talking about on this video. You see that, at least based on this report, the incidence of myocarditis is actually higher if you get the virus rather than the vaccine. Same thing with pericarditis, overwhelmingly pericarditis is inflammation of the lining around the heart, overwhelmingly more if you get the virus and then pulmonary embolism, which is blood clots in the lung, significantly more if you get the virus than if you get the vaccine. Going to the next table, tape figure four, what you see is this put in a, in a different graph form. And you can see, by and large, all the major risk factors that anyone would be concerned about it is significantly more If you catch the infection versus if you get the vaccine. And this is why it doesn't really make sense to say, I only want to get a vaccine that has no side effects because the alternative, which is getting the disease may have more of that particular side effect that you're worried about. So it's not just I'll avoid both. Uh, I think as we're learning in this pandemic, whether you get the vaccine or whether you get the virus is becoming more of a binary thing where it's either probably going to be one or the other. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was a thought, well, I won't get the vaccine and I'll be really careful and I won't get the virus. If we assume that most of us, including our children, will at some point get the virus or be exposed to the virus in a meaningful way, then the decision is no longer, hey, I don't want myocarditis or I don't want this side effect, so I'm not going to get the vaccine. The question really is, if you don't, and you or your children get the virus, you may actually be more exposed to that side of it you're trying to avoid by getting the virus. And I think this elegant study really hits the home, and these graphs really hit the point home very hard. So I think we've discussed the 12 to 15-year-old group, but we now know Pfizer is going to submit uh, to the FDA this week data on the 5 to 11-year-old population. And as we sort of did with the older population, the question of how safe it is versus the benefit is going to be yet again at hand. Interestingly, you know, we know some of the side effects that happen in the older population were at the 30 microgram dose, which was the adult dose. So for this group, Pfizer has done all their studies with 10 micrograms, one third of the dose. Presumably some of the side effects that we saw even in the adolescent and older population were dose-related and cutting the dose in one-third should dramatically, hopefully, even reduce the side effects um, more while hopefully maintaining the efficacy, the antibody response, the T-cell response, the cell-mediated response to the spike protein and SARS-CoV-2 virus. So that is what we're going to be looking at. And Pfizer just submitted a voluminous document for a meeting Monday, October 26th for the FDA, where they present their data on the 5 to 11-year-old group. I'm going to go over some of that information briefly, and I'll include it in the link if uh, you want to go over the whole thing. First of all, according to the executive summary in this submittal, Pfizer mentions that COVID-19 was among the top 10 leading cause of death in the 5- to 14-year-olds between January and May of this year. 1.8 million confirmed cases, and we know that's an understatement because a lot of children do not get tested and about half the cases are asymptomatic, 143 COVID-related deaths through October 14, 2001, and there was approximately 8,622 COVID-19-related hospitalization through September 18th. Based on this, they make the supposition that the pediatric burden of COVID-19 likely exceeds that of the seasonal influenza. Children also have long-term sequelae, like other adults out of the 5,217 children in the U.S. that were diagnosed with multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which is a sequelae of having the disease, half of those children were in the ages of 5 to 13. So obviously, children who are most at risk are the ones with comorbidities, including asthma, diabetes, obesity, and this would increase their risk for hospitalization and worse outcome. So coming up with vaccination strategies that are safe would be a thing that could really make it a severe impact, especially in this group. So this um, submittal by Pfizer really kind of breaks it down into really three things. That the lower dose produced a robust immune response, antibody response in children. There were no cases of myocarditis, although this is a small population and more studies need to be done. However, if they tail back on the Israeli studies in adolescence, we have a Idea of the safety profile in terms of that. And lastly, the fact that the vaccine efficacy in preventing COVID infection was 90%. Taking all that together, we have an idea of what this is going to look like in children. We just have to understand that, you know, the more we think of this pandemic as being binary, either our children are going to get the infection or they're going to get the vaccine. It allows us to properly, you know, evaluate the data we've talked about today. Obviously, we still need to maintain surveillance, look at potential long-term side effects. Uh, But as we discussed earlier, that's somewhat reassuring based on other vaccines and some of the preliminary data that have come out since the vaccines have come out. So that's where we are uh, with the COVID-19 vaccine for the 5 2 11 uh, age group, Uh, just so you know that the studies are going on for the six month to five year. So that's going to come out eventually. But I want to circle back. So we've gone over the data for the adolescents and for the children, and we've looked at the benefits and we've looked at uh, the side effects and how to process that information. And the more we view this pandemic as being binary, meaning you're either going to get the vaccine probably, or you're going to get the virus probably, uh, the more some of this becomes clear about what to do with this information. But, you know, interestingly, I alluded to earlier about the mental health fallout, uh, the socializing problem of not having children in person school with activities and what have you. And the Department of Education just released some data, and I'll include a link to this so you can see it yourself. But the emergency room department visits for ages 5 to 11 rose 24 percent and for yeah 5 to 11, 24 percent and 31 percent for 12 to 17 between January and October of 2020. Between March and June of 2020, more than 25% of parents reported that their children experienced declines in mental health, and 14% reported increases in behavior problem. In a survey conducted April to May 2020, one in four youth reported increase in sleep loss due to worry, feeling unhappy or depressed, feeling constantly under strain or loss of confidence in themselves. A the CDC report found one quarter of respondents 18 to 34 had contemplated suicide in the 30 days prior to the survey. And there was a report out of Washington State that there were significant increases in youth eating disorders, anxiety, mood disorders, depression with suicidal thoughts and self harm behavior, and within the LBGT, youth having specific challenges navigating limited social support and a significant number of previously stable youth that have experienced new onset of eating disorders and depression. So I guess what the point really is, you know, not, ha- not vaccinating and having further disruptions in school uh, has a downside that you have to add on to any potential benefits of the vaccine and against any potential side effects. Cause it's, it's not simply looking at the pros and cons of the vaccine, which I think clearly indicated in getting the vaccine in this age group, given the data we have, but also when you understand that there's unintended repercussions, potentially of further disruption in children's normal activities, normal school life, as it were. So I think Having that understanding, and that understanding is even going to be played out even more and more at the fallout from children not being in school for a year or so, and what happens long-term because of that. Those things need to be weighted in with, you know, um, getting the vaccine and getting children back to normal. But again, to summarize, I think if we view this as a binary thing where you either are probably going to get the virus or you're going to get the vaccine, then we can sort of understand this data more. Now, in the upcoming videos, we're going to have to talk about what happens if this really becomes endemic and what happens if we're going to need seasonal uh, COVID vaccines. I think we are starting to get a sense for what that may look like, but we need more data, more evidence. And I think the next three to six months will really play that out of and how that, that's going to wind up. Thank you for listening. You can check out my website, jonathanbaktarimd.com to sign up for my newsletter. And you can watch this full episode over on my YouTube channel, Baktari MD, where you can leave questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes. And as always, I'll see you next week on another episode of Baktari MD. Take care and be well.